This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we are here. Episode 200. Can you believe it? 200 of Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Guys, I just got to thank you all so much for being here with us because we launched this back in 2017. Okay, and we've we've gone with a bunch of different attitudes and we've gone with a bunch of different news stories and we've gone with a bunch of different people that we've interviewed and it's been a wild ride, but you have been there with us all the way, but you showed up and showed out in a huge way in the last week or so. So in the last week, guys, we actually had some breakthroughs. We broke into the top 40 on Apple Podcasts in the religion and spirituality category. And guys, we got all the way up to 18th on Spotify, right? So a lot of that had to do with the time that I spent with John Cooper over on his podcast. So for those of you that are here, because you came over from John Cooper's podcast, welcome. Thank you so much. And for those of you that are sending me messages saying you're going through my entire backlog, first of all, again, I got to apologize every time. The first like 12 or 15 or episodes or so, I didn't even know how the microphone worked. It wasn't this microphone. It was a crappier one. So I apologize for basically being right on top of the microphone and eating it and pop, 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 popping it the entire time. I apologize. Sorry. Terrible, terrible. But we all got better. We're all trying to figure this out. But I do want to let you guys know that in order for us to kind of keep this momentum going, this is my call to action. Before we get into what we're doing today, my call to action is if you like this podcast, please rate it. Give it five stars. I saw a guy the other day that gave me like the best message ever about how much he loved the podcast. And then he gave it two stars. I was like, well, wait a minute. Like if you're going to give it a good review, make sure you go and give it those five stars. I'm not interested in four or below. Give us five stars, but also leave a review. That's how these algorithms work and no one really knows exactly how they work. But if you rate, review, and then share the show, do not keep the show a secret, guys, right? Because for a long time, I was like, man, this is a really good show. Just no one really knows about it. But then as it's grown over the years and then being on podcasts like John Cooper's and some of the ones that we have coming up that we're really excited about, we're getting out to new audiences. You're a part of the process about getting us out to those new audiences. So just wanted to go with that. But also, as a thank you to all you guys, that have listened to us for this entire time or for your new listeners, we're going to go ahead and do a Q&A. So we don't do Q&As that often. We're down to just a handful of those a year, This, but this is actually Q&A episode 15. And I told you guys on social media that you could ask me anything, right? AMA, call it AMA or Q&A, whatever. You can ask me anything. And just <laughs> some of you guys took that and you ran with it. So that's what it is. But if you want your questions to potentially be answered on a future episode of Undaunted Life of Man's podcast, all you need to do is send them over to us via email or DM. So the email is, or I guess you could DM them, but DM them on any social media that you have, or you can email us info at undaunted.life. That's our email, I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Or you can just go to our website, www.undaunted.life backslash contact. I'll make sure all those are in the show notes. Now let's go and get into this episode. So for today, we're going to get into a lot of different subjects, right? Every time we do a Q&A episode, I typically do about 15 or so different questions. We're going to get into that Texas high school valedictorian that talked about how terrible it would be if she couldn't murder babies. We'll certainly talk about that. We got a lot of big UFC fights coming up, so we're going to do some fight picks. We're going to talk about the Paul brothers, Logan and Jake Paul and their boxing matches, some that are just behind them, some that are coming up. And if you stick around till the end, I will give you my thoughts on Fauci's emails. You know Fauci, Dr. Fauci, the greatest doctor to have ever lived, the most honest person to have ever lived, right? Just a boy from the Bronx is trying to tell us what to do with our masks, like that guy. We're going to talk about his emails, but you got to stick with us till the end. But we're going to start today's Q&A episode 
with perhaps the greatest troll in the history of Twitter, because this was the question. Kyle, what are your thoughts on the situation between AOC and Matt Walsh? So let's just talk about this, which by the way, I don't really like saying AOC because she's such a dumb person. I don't think she should have a cool nickname because AOC is kind of cool. It's unique, but we're going to go ahead and use it because it's a lot harder to say Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez every time. But this all came about because apparently AOC's abuela, her poor dear grandmother, is living in squalor. Okay. So on the 2nd of June, 2021, AOC posted this tweet. Just over a week ago, my abuela fell ill. I went to Puerto Rico to see her my first time in a year plus because of COVID. This is her home. Hurricane Maria relief hasn't arrived. Trump blocked relief money for, for PR. So Puerto Rico, people are being forced to flee ancestral homes and developers are taking them. Right. And then she posted a couple of pictures of the seemingly dilapidated house with, you know, kind of the, the ceiling caving in and there's, you know, buckets around to catch the water and things like that. And so obviously her point was to make you feel bad for her and her grandmother. If that is her grandmother's house, like that's, that's not a great situation for her to be living in. There's not a whole lot of furniture. Everything's wet. It's not a great situation, but it was really to dunk on Trump. And when you dunk on Trump, you dunk on the entire Republican party, blah, 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 all those things. Now, this tweet didn't have the desired effect that AOC wanted because no one was looking to pile on Trump here. Instead, they piled on her and for good reason. So many were pointing out that she makes $174,000 a year in salary to be a congresswoman. Okay. That's just her salary. That doesn't include all the other money she makes from speaking gigs and modeling things or interviews or any of the other stuff where she gets money, any money she gets under the table, whatever. Okay. So she's wealthy. She makes a lot of money. She also has two, not one, but two very nice, might even call them luxury apartments, one in Washington, D.C. and one in New York City, two of the most expensive places on the planet to live. And she also just leased or bought a Tesla. So I don't know if you guys know this or not. Teslas aren't cheap vehicles, right? These aren't Honda Accords. These aren't, well, that's not a cheap vehicle. That's a fine vehicle, but it's an expensive vehicle. We'll say that. I'm not hating on anybody with a Honda Accord. Used to drive one. They're a good whip. But I'm just going to say this, again, didn't have the desired effect. People from both sides of the aisle are like, eh, this is not good. You make way too much money to allow your abuela to live in this squalor. So, rightly, people were looking at AOC like, hey, how about you use some of that Tesla money? to fix your poor abuela's roof, your damn self. Like, why, why are you looking at the government? Why are you looking at all these other entities in order to do that? So the Daily Wire's Matt Walsh, right? So that Matt Walsh, he'll do and say just about anything. Like he's a very straightforward guy when it comes to these things. He responded on Twitter by saying this, shameful that you live in luxury while allowing your own grandmother to suffer in these squalid conditions. Right. So that, that's a pretty good comeback. But then AOC clapped back at him. Right. You know, she owned, you know, slay queened him. She responded to Wall saying this. You don't even have a concept for the role that first gen firstborn daughters play in their families. I don't know why that's relevant, but here we go. We'll keep going. My abuela is OK. But instead of only caring for mine and letting others suffer, I'm calling attention to the systemic injustices. There it is. You seem totally fine with in having a U.S. colony. So Puerto Rico's definitely not a U.S. colony, but okay, that's how she categorizes it. But she, again, even in that tweet, she admits that her abuela is okay. Well, if she was okay, why did you post the pictures? More on that here in a little bit. But then Matt Walsh does one of the funniest and maybe one of the best trolls. I can't think of a better troll than this off the top of my head. And it's one of the best trolls of all time, really. So Matt Walsh does this. He says, as you've heard, 
AOC's abuela is living in a dilapidated home that was ravaged by Hurricane Maria. AOC is unable to help her own grandmother for whatever reason, so I have set up this GoFundMe campaign to save her home. Please give if you can. Hashtag help abuela. Okay, and then he does a little follow-up tweet there and says, I will kick things off by donating by donating $499, which happens to be the cost of a monthly lease payment for a Tesla. I challenge Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, and Jeremy Boring, all from the Daily Wire, to match this donation. Together, we can change the world. Okay, so this is absolutely amazing. This this is absolutely amazing for a lot of different ways. Number one, a GoFundMe actually gets people to donate and it's real money that can be transferred to these people. It's a great thing. But in the first hour, they raised $10,000, okay, which is pretty awesome, right? 10,000 bucks in an hour. And then a few hours later, they hit their initial goal, just a few hours later, of $50,000. They eventually got to $100,000, over $100,000 in around 10 hours. It was the number one campaign on GoFundMe, okay? And then the plug got pulled. So Matt Walsh tweets this, you know, about 10 hours or so into this whole escapade. Update. Someone at AOC's Abuela's family told GoFundMe that she won't take the money, even though AOC previously claimed that her grandma was in dire straits and it was Trump's fault. AOC still hasn't acknowledged this effort or thanked us. Here's the email from GoFundMe, and then it's just basically the email acknowledges that. And then he has a couple more tweets here. Tragically, this charitable effort has been sabotaged by forces outside of our control. Still, I'm grateful for the outpouring of support for Abuela, even in AOC, even if AOC isn't. But questions remain. Why didn't AOC help her own Abuela? Why has our help turned why was our help turned down? Why are sorry, here we go. We are left to speculate. All right. So that was that tweet. And then the last one here in the end, our campaign raised over a hundred thousand dollars and could have solved a problem in 10 hours that AOC couldn't solve in four years. We can all be proud of that. As for Abuela, all we can do now is pray. And then there's a screenshot of the amount that they raised $104,153. So as Matt Wells pointed out on his show on Monday, Okay. This whole situation only leaves us with two explanations, right? Because, you know, we're past the trolls or we're past all the, you know, kind of fake philanthropy that turned into real philanthropy, but it only leaves us with two explanations. Number one, AOC would rather her grandmother and her entire community, because that amount of money could have not only fixed up her house, it could have fixed up really all of the houses in the neighborhood, right? With the amount of money they were about to raise. If they didn't pull the plug on it, who says this doesn't go to half a million, a million, right? But AOC would rather her grandmother and the entire community she lives in suffer than to accept money from generous conservatives. That's explanation one. Or two, AOC's abuela was never actually in any trouble, and AOC was spinning this whole situation for her political gain. Now, I know you might be saying, now, wait a minute, that's quite the accusation without evidence, but we've seen this before with AOC where she went down in her all white suit to the border, right? And she put herself by a fence and there just happened to be a professional photographer there taking a picture of her holding her face and crying because she just couldn't believe the situation that was going on. Whoopsie, the place where they took that picture, there were no kids in cages anywhere near her. The only thing on the other side of that fence was sand and lizards. That was it. She took that picture for political gain. Oh, look at how, look at how much I care for these kids and how much I care for all these people. That's why she did it. But this situation actually made me think about two other things. Number one, socialist dogmatists, right? These zealots for socialism, they can't fathom charity. It, charity doesn't even make sense to them. And that's why the right always outgives the left. Always. 
I mean, we've seen this talked about, you know, with Joe Biden. Like, I think he's the president that went into the White House giving the less, but the least amount by percentage to charity than any other president in the history of the United States. I, I think I'm right on that. If I'm not, he's near the top, right? But these people that just believe in socialism, they believe the government should take care of everything, right? AOC is looking around for what government agency agency could help her abuela, right? But look at all these people that got together, people that disagree with AOC that would probably not even like AOC's abuela and the things that she thinks, or who knows, they just gave money because it was the right thing to do. It's something that they wanted to do. It's something that they could do. But these dogmatists don't really care about that. And the second thing this made me think about is that AOC, like many in her age and younger, they will do anything. And I mean anything to score points on social media. That's what this was. She was trying to dunk on Trump. She was bored on the 2nd of June and she was just like, ah, you know what? I got these pictures. I think I'm going to dunk on Trump and conservatives. And they just dunked on her right back. It was a nasty one. It was like Blake Griffin over Kendrick Perkins back in the day. Like it was, it was bad. One of the worst undunks, redunkings, call it what you will, that I've ever seen. But again, this is not the last time that this will happen. Because the immediate aftermath from all these media, you know, quote unquote, media advocates and whatever, they basically came out and said that, you know, Matt Walsh was bullying her and that this was rude and that this was mean. But you got to ask the question, was the money real? And the answer to that question is yes. When you give to GoFundMe, it's just, you know, it's a little, you know, text on a ticker, but that's real money. When that money's transferred to the beneficiary, it's real money. This was a real thing that they did. Maybe they did it with funny intentions or trolling intentions, but the outcome was really amazing. So I did want to go ahead and get that out there to you guys. And so I'm glad I was asked about that. So next question we got here. You've been a father for over one year now. What are your biggest takeaways so far? And, and one thing I, I guess I want to kind of back up on these, in, on these Q and A's guys, some of these questions I've seen before and had a chance to kind of really go through others. I, you know, I just kind of glazed through. So this is one of the ones I don't really have a prepared comment. So I'll reread the question. You've been a father for over one year now. What are your biggest takeaways so far? Um, so I guess I would probably start with everybody knows that raising a kid is hard, right? Everybody said that no one's like, Oh, my kid's super easy. They just do everything I want every time I want them to do it. But you don't know the specifics about how it's going to be hard because it can wear on you personally. It can wear on your relationship. It can wear on the kid. You know, we had some health issues with him that are just kind of now getting figured out. So those are all big positives. So that, that's a positive thing. Also, I guess a big takeaway is, is you kind of realize how selfish you are sometimes or selfish, how selfish you've been with your time and the things that you do. Because when you have a kid, all those little pockets of time that you had that you were doing nothing when you're playing games on your phone or playing video games or doing fancy football draft prep or, you know, going and doing nothing for an hour, like you don't really have those times anymore. And so you're having to learn how to be efficient. And I guess, you know, Everybody talks about how kids kind of expand your your possibilities for love and your your I guess your maximums for love. Like you didn't know you could love anything. Now the thing about it is is my love for my wife is very very different. I have a much deeper love because I've known her for fifteen or sixteen years. We've been in love for that length of time, so it's a, it's a little bit different. But you know, different things that didn't affect me before. Like you'll rewatch a movie that you haven't watched in you know ten or fifteen years, and then all of a sudden that that little interaction between the father and son gets you choked up. Right. Same thing. Whenever I was going through the sacrifice book, where you know Michelle Black's book, where we just we just talked to her recently, the interactions that she was talking about with her kids, especially whenever her husband passed away, when when Brian was killed overseas, you know those hit different. They hit a lot different now that I have a kid. When I think about you know what would what would I be feeling if I could you know hover over my situation if I had just died and seeing you know what my wife and kids are going through. So those would be the things I would say that I've learned over the first uh, year. You know those biggest takeaways. All right, next thing here. 
All right, we got fight picks. So we, uh, people want to know what I think about some upcoming UFC fights. So this Saturday, if you're listening to this on time, this Saturday is UFC 263. This is this is a big one. Even from top to bottom, even some of the undercard fights are just amazing. But we've got Israel Adesanya versus Martin Vittori, two. We've got Devinson Figueredo and Brandon Moreno. And this is their second fight as well for the championship. And then Leon Edwards versus Nate Diaz. So I'll work my way from the bottom up to the top. So Leon Edwards versus Nate Diaz. This is a five rounder. I think this is the only time ever that there's, you know, the third fight on the main card is a five rounder. I think that's a Nate Diaz thing. He wanted that because, you know, Nate Diaz, let's just be honest. Nate Diaz sucks. He's not good, right? He's a good fighter. Yeah, he could beat me up. Yeah, he could beat you up. But he's just not a really good fighter. People think he's a good fighter. No, he's a popular fighter. He's not a good fighter. But he's going for five rounds because his only way of potentially beating Leon Edwards is to wear him out. But the thing about it is, is I go back to the fight that he had with, uh, dang it. All right. It was uh, Jorge Masvidal. Goodness. The fight he had with Jorge Masvidal, he was getting pieced up for three rounds. People were like, oh, no, he was just coming on. You know, fourth and fifth rounds were going to be his. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. He was just going to keep getting beat up. But the fight got stopped because of a cut. But. Leon Edwards is better than Jorge Masvidal. I think he's way better than Jorge Masvidal. So I think Nate Diaz is just going to get beat up. I think this fight's going to get stopped by a cut, all right? Because Nate Diaz is not a big-time fighter, right? He's had some big-time wins. Obviously, he beat Conor McGregor. You know, he beat... Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the people that he's beat recently because he's had, you know, he beat Cowboy back in the day. You know, he beat uh, Eddie, not Eddie Alvarez. Did he beat Eddie Alvarez? I can't even remember. But this guy has, most of his big wins are in his past, right? The last big win he had was against Conor McGregor. That was a long time ago. So I think Leon Edwards is going to easily win this fight and then he'll be next up probably, you know, maybe for the 170 pound title picture. We'll see. Then we got Davison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno. So this is a rematch of their flyweight uh, championship fight from the end of last year, which was either number one or number two in terms of fight of the year for last year. I'm just going to be real quick on this one. That was an amazing fight. Brandon Moreno showed unbelievable amounts of strength and toughness and all those different things. But that fight, when you break it down, it, it felt close, but it wasn't really that close. There was a foul that you know, Figueredo committed that was going to kind of throw the, the fight cards off a little bit like that. But Brandon Moreno never really had Devison Figueredo in trouble in that fight. And so I think we've seen the best that Brandon Moreno can fight against Devison Figueredo, and it wasn't enough. So in this fight, I don't think it's going to be nearly as easy. I don't know if Brandon Moreno, is it's even possible for him to get knocked out, but I do think he gets TKO'd in this fight. I think Devison Figueredo keeps his 125 flyweight title. And then we got the main event, Israel Adesanya versus Marvin Vittori. That's their second fight. They actually fought way back in the day. It was either Izzy's first or second fight in the UFC, and this is for the middleweight title at 185. And I'm just going to go out there on a limb, guys. I'm going with Vittori in this one. And I think I've said before, I'm not a huge Adesanya fan, you know, especially what he did with Yoel Romero calling him out and then having such a stinker of a fight. You don't call out the monster and then decide to fight defensively the entire time. Like, I'm sorry, I'm just not really into that. But Israel Adesanya, he just got beat by Jan Blachowicz because he went up to 205 to try to take that title. And Jan Blachowicz basically gave us the, you know, the menu or not the menu, but he gave us a blueprint rather for how to beat him, right? And the basically Jan Blachowicz stayed out of range of some of Adesanya's bigger shots in the first three rounds. And then he basically took Adesanya down for the last two rounds. Vittori can take Adesanya down and hold him, right? Can he do that for five rounds? I don't really know, but I think Vittori has more ways to win. Where Adesanya, he's got the more flashy ways to win. You know, he can knock you out with a scissor kick. He can knock you out with a, you know, Superman punch. He can knock you out with a million different things. But if Vittori doesn't get hit, 
as he didn't really get hit in their last fight, I think he can pull it out. So that's who I'm going with. All right, then on July the 10th, we've got the big one, right? That's UFC 264. This is a trilogy fight between Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier. And then there's also on that fight card, Gilbert Burns versus Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. So that's kind of a 170 eliminator type fight. So these guys are probably two fights away from being uh, you know, ready for championship type of thing. Gilbert Burns just lost in a championship challenge uh, against Kamaru Usman. But I'm going to go with Wonderboy Thompson in this one. Uh, I think he's on the ascension. This is his last ride to potentially win a title. He's never won a title in the UFC. He's lost twice to Tyron Woodley, who we'll talk about more later. But I'm going to go ahead and go with Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. But let's go ahead and get into the main event, Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier. Obviously, the first meeting a long time ago, Conor McGregor dusted Dustin Poirier early in the first round. Okay? Then they have the rematch. Um, and Dustin Poirier, you know, he surprised Conor McGregor with a takedown earlier in that fight. He destroyed his lead leg because Conor was heavy on the lead leg with his wide stance, kind of more of a boxing stance, got beat up, and then he actually ended up getting knocked out in the second round of that fight. So here we've got the immediate rematch. This is a trilogy match. You know, neither one of these guys are worried about the title right now. They're worried about the money fight, and this is the money fight. But as I look at this fight, there's so much that can happen by July 10th. But I'm not putting a lot of stock into what I see on Twitter, on Instagram, or anything like that. I know they're both working out. I know they're both working on their games. But here's the thing. Dustin Poirier couldn't have fought any better the last time he fought Conor McGregor, right? And Conor McGregor had him hurt in the first round. Dustin Poirier surprised him with the takedown. He surprised him with the low calf kicks. There's not another surprise that Dustin Poirier can pull out that's going to affect the fight in that big of a way. Now, I think that Dustin Poirier is a much more durable fighter. Uh, you know, when Conor McGregor knocked out Dustin Poirier, that was at 145. This fight's at 155. Dustin Poirier seems to be, you know, in a lot better shape physically uh, at 155. He's uh, he's much more dense of a guy. He's harder to knock out. But Conor did have him hurt in the first round. He just didn't follow it up. I think Conor's got really good coaches around him. And this, this is a toss-up fight. That's why there's not going to be a huge favorite one way or the other, uh, you know, if you look at the Vegas odds. But I think Conor McGregor pulls this out. I think he's going to be able to make those adjustments and make those changes. But I will just say this. If he does lose, that might be the last time we see him fight. You know, this is a guy, again, it's hard to wake up and run those early morning miles when you wake up in silk sheets. We've all heard it before. But he's the number one fighter on the Forbes list for this year because he sold or, you know his portion of Proper 12 and those different things like that. So the guy's good to go. The motivation to just take on all these killers at 155, I question if it's there. But if he beats Dustin Poirier, he's fighting for the title, and you know we'll kind of see where it goes. A couple more fights I want to kind of go through. Uh, UFC Fight Night, July 17th, Max Holloway, former champion, versus Yair Rodriguez. i got to be honest, I was surprised Max Holloway signed this because whenever he beat the brakes off of Calvin Cater, it's like, dude, just sit around until there's a title fight for you. But he wants to stay busy. Yair Rodriguez is a top-five fighter. But here's the thing. I don't think this is going to be a close fight. And I know this is a little bit of MMA math, but Korean Zombie, yeah, you know, he destroyed Yair Rodriguez in their fight a couple of years ago for 24 minutes and 57 seconds. Absolutely destroyed him. But Yair landed an unbelievably impressive and lucky shot, this kind of back elbow thing to knock out Korean Zombie at the very, very end of their fight. Max Holloway is way better than Korean Zombie. He's way better in just about every way that someone can be better. Way, 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 way better. Okay. So I don't think that this is going to be a close fight. Can Yair Rodriguez do some sort of like big time thing and knock him out? Yeah, he, he certainly can. But Max Holloway is incredibly durable. And I just think he, I think he wins this easily. I think this is going to be a baptism. Max Holloway all the way. And then he's going to fight the, the winner of, um, 
Alexander Volkanovsky and T-City uh, to, to basically try to get his title back, his 145 title back. Last fight we'll go over is fight night, July 24th, because I don't know when the next time we're going to be doing a Q&A is. We have Corey Sanhagen versus TJ Dillashaw. This is TJ Dillashaw's first fight after coming off a two-year suspension for doping. And Corey Sanhagen is about as much on an ascension as you can get, right? He lost that fight uh, back in the day to... Uh Man, I'm, I'm like bad today on like remembering people's names. The current champion. It's going to drive me insane. Uh, oh, goodness. I mean, we're just, you know, we're going to look this up live. I can't, I can literally draw you a picture of this guy. I can hear his coaches yelling at him in the corner. He just, you know, sort of won that fight against Peter Yan. Aljo Sterling. Goodness. I didn't even have to look it up. For those of you that are wondering, I didn't even touch the the, the keyboard yet. Aljermaine Sterling. So Corey Sanhagen lost to Aljermaine Sterling back in the day. Um, it was an easy win for Aljo, to be honest. But Corey Sanhagen has absolutely looked amazing. He destroyed. Frankie Edgar, one of the saddest knockouts I've ever seen. I literally yelled out, oh no, as soon as he landed that flying knee. This is kind of a hard one because for me, until further notice, I think that TJ Dillashaw is the best 135 pounder in the world, but he hasn't fought for two years. Is he slower? He's had double shoulder surgery, right? Is that going to make him better? Is that going to make him tighter? I don't want to know, but until further notice, until it's proven to me that TJ Dillashaw is not the best 135 pounder on the planet, I'm going to go with TJ Dillashaw. I'm not really a fan of him anymore because I'm not really a fan of people that dope uh, in general, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if Corey Sanhagen actually took this. All right, we're going to stay in the world of fighting, but we're going to move over to like the freak show that has been boxing recently. Here's the next question. What are your thoughts on the Logan Paul versus Floyd Mayweather boxing match over the weekend? So if you're listening to this on time last Sunday, Floyd Mayweather and Logan Paul. Yes, Floyd Mayweather, supposedly the greatest boxer ever versus Logan Paul, a YouTube star that I think is one and one or one and two in his uh, you know boxing career. They had an eight round exhibition match. No, I did not watch it, right? Why in the world would I pay 50 bucks to watch that? Because I could tell you what was going to happen. I had a buddy text me the morning of the fight and say, dude, I'm thinking about, you know, betting the house on Floyd Mayweather knocking this guy out. Am I crazy? And I said, dude, why would Floyd Mayweather, because Logan Paul is a big kid. He's about 40 pounds bigger than Floyd Mayweather. He's a long kid, but he's not a boxer. But if you're going to knock somebody out, you have to take risks, right? As a boxer, you have to open yourself up a little bit in order to knock somebody out. Logan Paul was long enough and athletic enough to maybe survive. So this always felt to me like it was going to be a decision, even though there weren't judges. I felt like this was going to go the full eight rounds. There wasn't going to be a knockout. I thought there might be a knockdown or two for Floyd Mayweather on Logan Paul, but there just wasn't. The thing is, is I'm not mad at these dudes because both of them made tens of millions of dollars to do this thing. It was a freak show. I don't think this destroys Floyd Mayweather's legacy. This guy is in his 40s and he's still getting paid tens of millions of dollars to box. But I just got to tell you, for those of you that watched that fight expecting something different, what have you been watching for the last multiple decades with Floyd Mayweather? How many times do you leave a Floyd Mayweather pay-per-view satisfied? Because people talk about, oh, you know, boxing's about not getting hit, but he's not an exciting fighter to watch because of his defensiveness, right? It's amazing. It's the sweet science. It's all those things. It's not appealing. Why would you want to part with 70, 80 bucks to watch a pay-per-view to watch a guy hug and duck out of the way? Now he's just an old guy that's hugging and ducking out of the way. So those are my thoughts on Logan Paul versus Floyd Mayweather. All right, next thing here. What are your thoughts on the Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley boxing match that will occur later this year? Okay, I think this fight's going to happen in like October or something like that. So Jake Paul, another YouTube star, the younger brother of Logan Paul, you know, just knocked out Ben Askren, Tyron Woodley's boy. Here's how this all started. You can send one member of your team into the other team's locker room whenever they're taping up the hands, right? Just to make sure there's no chicanery, no craziness going on and all that kind of stuff. You're just there watching. Well, when Tyron Woodley's in there just minding his own business before Jake Paul is going to go out there and fight one of his best friends at Ben Askren, they start chirping at Tyron Woodley. 
And I remember, even with all the stuff that went on and all that craziness that, that went on with that pay-per-view, I remember thinking to myself, ooh, you don't want to do that. You know, Jake Paul and his coaches are kind of John and Tyron Woodley. I'm like, no, 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 bro, bro, that's T-Wood. You don't want any of that. T-Wood's a serious dude, right? This guy used to just get into street fights because he liked to fight so much. And then he got paid a lot of money to do that professionally. You don't want to mess with him. But, you know, Tyron kind of, you know, held his tongue. And he said later, he's like, look, that wasn't my fight. This was, you know, all about Ben Askren. Of course, Ben Askren, a guy that was never a boxer, never a striker in any context whatsoever. He was an MMA champion because he was a takedowner and a ground and pounder. This, it was a horrible fight. He had, it was seven months after, you know, hip surgery. He wasn't in shape. It was awful. It was awful in every way possible. I never thought in a million years that Jake Paul would actually sign on the dotted line to fight Tyron Woodley five-time UFC welterweight champion, right? Knocked out Robbie Lawler to win the belt, right? Just devastating power in his hands, right? But he did. He signed. I don't know what Jake Paul's team sees, but I hope they're not doing MMA math for Tyron Woodley. Because if you're thinking about it, Tyron Woodley lost his last four UFC fights, his last four MMA fights, right? But we got to look at who he lost to and how he lost to them, okay? So he lost his belt to Kamaru Usman, right? Kamaru Usman basically wrestled him up against the cage and beat him up for five rounds. Tyron looked terrible. Then he goes out and loses to Gilbert Burns. Gilbert Burns basically does the exact same thing that Kamaru Usman did, except Gilbert Burns actually hurt Tyron Woodley in the first round of that fight. But then he just basically smashed him for 25 minutes. Then we got to look at Colby Covington. Colby Covington did the exact same thing that Kamaru Usman and Gilbert Burns did, maybe even a little bit more impressively. Like, just pressured him up against the cage. There was never any time for Tyron Woodley to strike. I'm not sure Tyron Woodley even landed anything. It was a terrible for performance. So those are three horrible fights in a row for Tyron Woodley. But then he just fought Vicente Luque in what was his last fight in the UFC. He looked great in the first round. He looked fast. He looked aggressive. He hurt Vicente Luque. But then Vicente Luque ended up catching him and 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 beating him and, you know, knocking him out. And it was, it was a bad deal for Tyron. Four-fight losing streak. But... He lost to Kamaru Usman, Gilbert Burns, Colby Covington, and Vicente Luque. Those first three guys I mentioned, Usman, Burns, and Covington, those are top five welterweights on the planet. Any organization, those guys are in the top five, right? That might be your top three 170-pounders on the planet. And then Vicente Luque is a bona fide top 10 170-pounder on the planet. There's no shame in losing to those guys. Now, when, whenever you run off all the title defenses Tyron Woodley had, you know, it does seem a little bit weird that he would have such a struggle with some of these guys. But I don't think that Jake Paul's team is giving Tyron Woodley very much credit. Now, if you're a betting person, I would tell you to bet the farm on Tyron Woodley, you know, bet, bet the neighbor's farm, bet, bet everything on Tyron Woodley. But I, I don't trust these Paul brothers. I don't trust the, the Triller or Thriller or whatever the, the organization is that they're doing these boxing matches with, with. If there were ever to be a fix, this would be the fight. Even though it's kind of weird because Jake Ball, Paul is being considered the favorite right now. But it would not be crazy to me to think that Tyron Woodley would take a fall to make you know tens of millions of dollars for one night. Because from his perspective, his legacy might already be destroyed. He lost his last four fights in the UFC. No one cares about his rap career. Nobody's like knocking on his door to be some bad dude in a, in a you know, acting situation. So I don't really know. But if this is a strict boxing fight, Tyron Woodley should and will beat the brakes off of Jake Paul. All right, we're going to get into the next question here. 
Kyle, what are your thoughts on the recent high school abortion speech that was made by the valedictorian down in a high school in Texas? Okay, so uh, this situation is really, really important and really telling in a lot of ways. But I want you to remember this name, Paxton Smith. Because this is the last, not the last time, I need to stretch the imagination that you're going to hear this girl's name. She's the latest child hero of the left because she, because of what she did at her high school graduation. So to give you a little background, Paxton is a senior at Lake Highlands High School in Dallas, Texas. She was delivering her valedictorian speech, right? You know, great honor for her. Great, great that she even got there. And instead of delivering her prepared and approved remarks, because, you know, they have to submit their speech to the, you know, to the principal, school board, whatever, so they can approve it so they don't go out there and act a fool. But she decided to become a champion for baby murder. That's what she wanted to use her few minutes of glory for. So she said that she was supposed to, even you know, when she started her remarks, that she was supposed to talk about media and things like that, but that her conscience couldn't let her do that because of quote unquote recent events. Okay. So what she was referring to is the Texas heartbeat bill, which was signed into law by Texas governor, Greg, Greg Abbott. So thank you so much, Greg Abbott for doing that, which bans abortions after a fetal heartbeat is detected, which is around the six week mark. Now I will go ahead and say what I've said before about heartbeat bills. The thing about heartbeat bills is they're easy to get around if you're playing parenthood, because if you're an evil ultrasound nurse, you're just going to, whoops, didn't find the heartbeat. I guess we can go ahead and murder this child now. And also it just kind of implies that, you know, what about the kids that are less than six weeks old in the womb? Do they not matter? But again, I, I get the idea. Most women don't know that they're pregnant at the six week mark, right? They've only missed their period by maybe a couple of weeks, but you know, I do like this. I do think this is a step in the right direction. It's just not a complete step in that direction. This law is set to go into effect in September of this year, but I want to go ahead and get into the clip here. I'm going to play just a short clip of what she's saying, and I'll probably cut in and out just to kind of give you some analysis, and then I'll give you some things that we can take away from this situation. Uh, and I'll also put the, the link here in the show notes uh, just so you can click along or watch along with YouTube if you want to or watch it later. Her speech starts around the five-minute mark, maybe a little bit before that, but we're going to go ahead and get started. This is around the five-minute, 19-second mark, so here we go. Recently, the heartbeat bill was passed in Texas. Starting in September, there will be a ban on abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, regardless of whether the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest. Okay, so quick pause here, because again, I got to kind of cut in and out here. But rape and incest is well less than 1% of all abortions, right? So when people give that argument to you, you can't cede the ground to them. Because you got to ask them, are the 99 plus percent of all other abortions wrong? If we can have a conversation about rape and incest, because every time they bring that up, they do that to appeal to some sort of an emotional thing inside of you, but it's not a logical thing, right? It doesn't matter how the pregnancy happened. It matters whether or not you're going to destroy the life that resulted from that sexual act. Okay. So here we go back into it. Six weeks. That's all women get. And so before they realize, most of them don't realize that they're pregnant by six weeks. So before they have a chance to decide if they are emotionally, physically, and financially stable enough to carry out a full-term pregnancy, before they have the chance to decide if they can take on the responsibility of bringing another human being into the world, that decision is made for them by a stranger. A decision that will affect the rest of their lives is made by a stranger. Again, surprise, surprise, these are all emotive attacks, right? These are these are emotive things to get you to think, oh man, this is such a hard situation. But again, overwhelmingly, over 99% of the people that get pregnant, get pregnant because they were doing a sexual act consensually, right? These were not people that were being held down and raped, right? By a family member or otherwise. That's not the reality. So this girl 
is talking about this. This young woman is talking about this as if this is just something that happened, right? This just happened to her. No, choices were made and there are consequences of those choices. And you shouldn't be thinking of a baby as some massive negative consequence. Okay, but back into it. I have dreams and hopes and ambitions. Every girl graduating today does. And we have spent our entire lives working towards our future. And without our input and without our consent, our control over that future has been stripped away from us. I am terrified that if my contraceptives fail, I am terrified that if I am raped, then my hopes and aspirations and dreams and efforts for my future will no longer matter. Me, me, me. It's all about me. Let's not focus on the baby, right? It's all about me. My aspirations, the things that I want to do. Me, 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 me. All right, let's let her finish. I hope that you can feel how gut-wrenching that is. I hope you can feel how dehumanizing it is to have the autonomy over your own body taken away from you. And I'm talking about this today, on a day as important as this, on a day honoring 12 years of hard academic work, on a day where we are all gathered together, on a day where you are most inclined to listen to a voice like mine, a woman's voice, to tell you that this is a problem, and it's a problem that cannot wait. And I cannot give up this platform to promote complacency and peace when there is a war on my body and a war on my rights. A war on the rights of your mothers. A war on the rights of your sisters. A war on the rights of your daughters. We cannot stay silent. Thank you. So obviously, this is kind of that big crescendo at the end. Everyone starts clapping. This is great. All her classmates are out there on the football field separated by six feet because they're, you know, administrators are morons. But yes, she had her moment in the sun. And then obviously, automatically, she got all types of plaudits from people on the left, all these pro-abortion people that just love this young lady, right? They got another zealot, right? They, they can expose this girl and they can exploit her and do everything that they need to do. But this brought up a lot of very important things that we need to talk about from the very, very beginning. Okay. So the first thing is that Paxton Smith is ignorant. Okay. So, so here's the thing. Most commentators, right. And I just got to talk about this from the beginning before I get into the rest of my points. Most commentators are giving this girl a pass because, you know, she's just a kid, quote unquote. I mean, just a kid. She's graduating from high school guys conservative commenters and Christian commenters that are giving this girl a pass. She's graduating from high school. That means she's either 18 right now or she's about to turn 18. We have a term for that here in the United States, and that's an adult. She's legally an adult or about to be an adult. I give her no such pass, right? She doesn't get a pass. Now, she might change her mind later in life, but typically people that think this way don't change their mind. They get further ingrained in that ideology. So the first thing about Paxton Smith is that she is ignorant. She's an ignorant person right? Again, she has heard all these arguments before and she thinks that she has made up her mind and that her way of thinking is the best. And she's giving no regard whatsoever to the baby that's inside of her. Okay. Which leads to the next point, which is that Paxton Smith is selfish. I mean, that entire speech guys, the entire thing is about her, right? And you know, she would probably say, and other people say, no, no, she's talking about all women. And she's talking about all these issues. She's talking about everybody. It's kind of like AOC. It's like, no, 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 don't focus on abuela. Right. Don't focus on the person that I told you to focus on. Focus on everybody that is being affected by systemic injustices, whatever those are. But then Paxton Smith comes out and she's basically talking about her 
and her 12-year struggle to graduate from high school. My goodness, let's get her 10 trophies because she graduated from high school. Great. Thanks for doing something that literally almost everybody has done before. Goodness gracious. But then at the same time, you have this gal talking about her future and the things that would go wrong if she couldn't do what she wanted to do, right? She's incredibly selfish. And then you have Paxton Smith. And just another aside, because people are like, why are you picking on this little girl? Again, she's an adult and she made this an issue. Don't get mad at me for talking about it. She made this an issue. She went up and gave this speech and she knew what she was doing. She maybe didn't know that it would, you know, go around the world and make her famous, but she knew what she was doing. Okay. So as an adult, if she brings it up, I can talk about it. The next thing about Paxton Smith is that she has evil ideologies. And I'm being very careful and not calling her evil. She might be an evil person. But all that I know about Paxton Smith is that she believes evil things. She has evil ideologies. She's a zealot for murder. Think about it. All she can think about is what she and the other girls like her could do if her contraceptives fail or if these things happen. No concern for what comes from what happens when your contraceptives fail. And that's getting pregnant with a baby, a new life. That as a superhero, as a woman, you get to push out of your vaginal canal and then keep it alive in a way that only you can do, right? But she believes these evil, evil things, which gets to the last point. And then we'll let Paxton Smith off the hook for now. Because again, this is not the last we're going to have heard from her. She's going to be put everywhere. She's probably going to be talking at the next DNC. Paxton Smith is a sponge. She's a sponge. Guys, where do you think she got these ideas about abortion? Is it possible that she grew up in a family with that where, you know, all Democrats are very left-leaning and maybe they went and volunteered for Planned Parenthood and all those different things? That's certainly possible. I don't know that to be the case, but it's certainly possible. But I have another guess, likely from her teachers growing up, from her K through 12 teachers, her public school teachers that were supposed to be teaching her reading, writing, arithmetic, history, civics, science, something else. But instead, they were teaching her how to be a leftist, whether they were doing that on purpose or whether they were just useful idiots in the process, okay? Because I think, I don't know if I mentioned this on this podcast or not, but there's a a local business leader here in my community that she was talking about how how glad she was that her 16-year-old was having these, you know, discussions in school about racial violence and racial reconciliation and, you know, all the things that go in with that social justice and all that. And I kind of pushed back on her and I was like, Hey, look, this probably isn't the best thing for a teacher to be doing. Cause what, what were they talking about this in a, an English class? Right. I, I think they were, t- maybe they were reading to kill a mockingbird and then they were talking about racism, but it's like most of these teachers aren't even good enough to get all of their kids at acceptable levels of, of performance, whether it's on testing or just to get them to the next level. So why in the world do we want these state officials telling us and telling our kids what they should think about things or even having those discussions. I'm sorry, you are not qualified to do that. You're probably not even qualified to be teaching my kid. And yet you want to have a discussion about abortion, about racism, about anything, taxation. No, that is not your role. You stay in your lane. Your lane is not to have those discussions with my kid. But Paxton Smith probably had a dozen of those teachers or more, maybe even coaches or even other, other people, activities, you know, directors or whatever that were just feeding these things into her. Maybe it was YouTube. Maybe it was social media. Maybe it was AOC. Maybe it was Hillary Clinton. Who knows? But she picked up all these things because she didn't say anything unique guys. 
She has literally said things that people have been saying that are on the pro-abortion side of this argument for forever. This isn't unique by any stretch of the imagination. She's not an impressive person. I pity her because she's going to walk in to whatever university she goes into now, which is going to be a leftist place. And people are like, oh my gosh, that's Paxton Smith. That's the famous girl that talked about how much her life would be ruined if she couldn't kill her baby after the six week mark. So if that's all she does with her life, that, that will be the mark she's left on humanity. Was that speech when she was 17 or 18 years old? So this is a great call to action for all you guys. You need to be praying for that girl. That girl's messed up. She believes some very, very evil things. And she's going to be around a, around a bunch of people this fall that are going to believe the exact same ways that she does. And she's going to be further ingrained in that. We should pray that the gospel sweeps over that girl and helps her realize that what's growing inside of her is not her. And she's not pregnant, but what could be growing inside her someday is not her. She does not have a right to kill that thing, regardless of what the government tells her. All right, guys, next question here. This one came from an Instagram follower. What was the best slash worst thing about being in your 20s, right? So I guess, I guess this guy thinks I'm old, right? Hey, I'm 34. I'm still spry, all right? But hey, hey you know, we'll, we'll take your question. So I guess we'll start out with, with the best thing. Best thing for my 20s was getting married young and traveling. So a lot of people might say the latter part, but not really the first part. So my wife and I got married when we were both 22, right? So by the time I was 30, I had been married for almost a decade. And I know when I used to live in New York City, people thought like I was insane. They're like, wait a minute, wait. I was like 25 and had been married for three years. And they're like, what? They're like 40 and they're just now looking around for a life partner. And then they wonder why they struggle to get pregnant and, you know, struggle to, you know, do all those different things. It's because you did the business thing, right? You did the career thing first. You did the travel thing. You did all the selfish stuff first. And now the building the family thing that you wanted to come later after you got everything set up is not quite working out for you. It's not something that I want to be super critical of. It's something that's really sad to point out. So I just want to point at it. But getting married so young was awesome. But my wife and I averaged uh, for the first, you know, 10 or so years of our marriage, we took one international trip every other year. So we've been to Japan. We've done a Mediterranean cruise. We did a cruise in Australia, New Zealand. Like, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why we don't buy each other birthday gifts. We don't buy each other, you know, Valentine's Day gifts. We don't do anniversary gifts for one another. We don't do Christmas gifts for one another. We would take that money and we would allocate that money that we were going to spend on each other on stuff basically that we'd be blowing stuff that isn't thoughtful. It's just stuff that you buy and give to somebody so that they don't get mad at you for 24 hours. And we just put all that money into a travel fund. And that's how we funded all these trips. We didn't go into debt to do any of these trips. We paid for these trips with cash and air miles and stuff like that. And that was the best part of my 20s is because I can look back because you have these folks that, you know, they'll save their entire life for that trip to Rome. But by the time they've saved up for it, maybe they're in their 60s. Maybe they're not in great health. Maybe their bodies aren't in great shape or something like that. And the thought of walking around on cobblestone streets for a week eh, doesn't really fit. And maybe now you're diabetic, so you know gelato's not really going to be helpful for you to be taken in. So we're glad that we did that young, and we're going to continue traveling. Uh, the worst part about my 20s, um, didn't really prepare something for this, but I guess I would say I, I took a lot of learning lumps that I wish I hadn't, right? I mean, it's good for, for me now, but especially within my career. I think especially in my, because I graduated from college in 2008 before I went and got my master's, but that was around kind of the the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. It wasn't really easy to find a job. I was averaging, basically, I look back on my career up to this point. It's like I basically averaged a job, a different career, a different type of job for every year I've been out of college. 
That's not really great. I've seen some friends of mine that maybe weren't the best students, maybe weren't the most involved, maybe weren't the most impressive people coming up that they just took the first job they could get right out of school and then they've just stayed there and now they've been there for over 10 years and they're they're working well and things are going really, really well for them. I've really had that road. So I've had kind of a little bit of a pockmarked past when it comes to career and things like that. And so that would be probably the worst part uh, about my 20s is just kind of bouncing around a little bit. But hey, finding, you know, finding my voice here with Undaunted Life and with you guys, it's obviously landing. So I think that that's important. All right, next question. Kyle, who do you prefer, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis? Okay, so that is the former president, Donald Trump, or the current governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. So this wasn't, this is an easy one for me. It's clearly DeSantis, okay? Because I know there are a lot of people holding out hope that Trump is going to, you know, like a phoenix, rise from the ashes and run again in 2024. And I think if that happens, it'll be an even bigger beatdown than this last one. Again, talk about the election and all things that happened. Again, this idea that Joe Biden, a dead person, can get way more votes than Barack Obama did, even at his height of popularity. Man, I, I just can't really get that through my head. But even a dead person, I don't think that that Joe Biden will be running for a second term and it'll be Kamala Harris. But Trump is so polarizing. And now he's got January 6th hanging from his neck, right? Regardless of if you think it's it's his fault or not. Tens of millions of people in the United States, voters, think it was his fault. They think he basically told a bunch of dorks to go and storm the Capitol, right? So even with all the positives from the Trump presidency in the first three years, no one was thinking about that in the year of COVID. And yes, the media was against him and all that, blah, blah, blah. And you can see that the U.S. media and Democrats are scared of Ron DeSantis because he is currently, uh, you know, getting attacked. No matter what he does, he's being attacked. And so that's kind of the thing that I think with him, the thing that I like the most about Ron DeSantis is that he is not the worst parts of Trump. He's the best parts of Trump, right? He will point out things that are stupid. He will move legislatively to make those things happen. You know, he's a governor and not maybe like a House of Representatives person. So he's really in the inner workings of running a state. It's a swing state, right? So you, you would want Florida to stay red, right? It was red for Trump two times, but you know, you'd want it to stay red. But I think Ron DeSantis is, you know, the other side of Trump's personality. I think Trump has kind of ran his course. He's done his thing. I want him to get out of the way now. Go and, you know, hit the road for Ron DeSantis or somebody else. Like, go and hit the road for these people. But if he's the focus of the story, it's bad for Republicans, in my opinion. Again, I know a lot of people listening to this are big MAGA people, and hey, to, to each their own. I didn't vote for him in 2016 both times. I did decide to vote for him in 2020. Go back. I forget what number the episode is, but I did an entire episode on the reasons to vote for Donald Trump. And I also did an entire episode for Joe Biden. So if you haven't heard that one, you might like it. It's pretty funny. But the Donald Trump thing, I think it's ran... It's ran its course. He's going to continue to get pounded by social media. They just updated his uh, suspension to Facebook for another two years. So he's going to be gone from one of the biggest social media platforms on the planet, the biggest social media platform on the planet for at least another two years. That's through the midterms next year, but he would potentially be able to come back for, for his run. It's just not the same, right? He can't talk directly to the American people on Facebook or on Twitter, especially on Twitter because of the lifetime ban. I just think Trump needs to just do his thing on the side, do your TV thing, like, you know, launch a radio station, do whatever you want, but just get out of the way and let Ron DeSantis do his thing. And I'm not saying Ron DeSantis is number one, like the 100%, the guy that needs to happen for the Republican party in 2024, but I'd certainly prefer him over Trump. All right, next question here. So this is you guys taking the AMA thing uh, to its logical end. Have you ever smoked weed? And I can honestly say, guys, no, I have never used marijuana in any form in my entire life. Okay. And so I know for some of you that might seem surprising because just about everybody has tried weed in, in some way, shape or form. They've tried marijuana. They've, they've either done edibles or they've smoked it from a bong or whatever. 
Weed has never appealed to me in any way, shape, or form. Okay. So I know you're going to come up with these examples of these geniuses in your life that smoke weed. Oh, Joe Rogan and, you know, Elon Musk and the, you know, these really, really famous people, they smoke weed. The people that I was around growing up that smoked weed were losers for the most part, right? If you had to categorize them, these were not top students. These were not top athletes. These were not people that were crushing it. These weren't people that were getting scholarships to go to school. These were people that were just trying to make it, trying to eke their way through life. And they, they would smoke weed. That was like their reprieve from, you know, a bad family or, you know, hating their school teachers and all this other different things. It was this countercultural thing. It never appealed to me. Okay. I didn't drink either as a kid that didn't appeal to me either. Even though now I drink whiskey, like it's something that I really enjoy. I teach classes on, on how to drink whiskey and you know, the history and all that, all that's great. But again, marijuana has just never really been something that I've ever even wanted to try. The idea of being out of control, not, not out of control, like flying around crazy, like people that do get drunk all the time, but like just being high and just like when I see people and they're like, they get all paranoid and things like that. Like, I don't want that. Like, I, like, I don't need that. I'm a pretty high strung guy, but I know how to relax, right? Part of the reason why I work out so much and so hard is because I need to kind of take that edge off. I don't need a substance like weed to do that. And frankly, I don't need whiskey to do that either. When I drink whiskey, I get to the point where I'm just, I, I like the taste of it. Same thing with cigars. I like the taste of it. This is not something that I do every day. I might drink once or twice a month and have one or two. It's just, just kind of a relaxing thing. I don't ever even get close to, you know, the, the sinfulness of being drunk. Like it's just not really something I want to do. And I think there are issues. Uh, I, we don't see weed or marijuana talked about specifically in scripture, but I think there are some arguments that say that we need to kind of be in the now and live in the now because that is the now that God has given us right as a gift. And so when you take a substance like weed, it takes you to a different place. And I don't know that's necessarily the right thing. I don't think this is a hill to die on for a lot of Christians, but no, it's not something that's ever appealed to me. It's not something I'll ever do. Our next question here, has anything surprised you so far this major league baseball season? So for those of you that are communists, you're not going to like this next section, but we're going to talk a little baseball, but yeah, sure. There's a lot of things, you know, two months into the season that have been surprising. Uh, one of the biggest things that's, I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but it is no one, everyone just won't shut up about Fernando Tatis Jr. I get it. The kid's good at baseball, but like I literally got a notification on my phone the other day because he had like a backhanded pick and threw it over to first base. He literally did something that shortstops do multiple times a week, right? Every shortstop in Major League Baseball. And it was like, stop the presses. We got to have a bleacher report thing. We got to have somebody, you know, basically talk about this. We, you know, we got to put a graphic on it and all that. It's one of the greatest things that ever happened. I get it. The kid's good. I'm not butt hurt that he's not on the St. Louis Cardinals. I know the people over in the organization. And the thing was, he was never going to sign with the Cardinals. They were just using the Cardinals to try to up his price that they could get for him. That's why he went to the White Sox because they got the, the most amount from the White Sox and they traded him over to San Diego. I get it. He's a great player, but man, I'm, I'm just kind of over it. All the, you know, all the flashiness and all that. I don't really care. I guess it's also surprising how much Jacob DeGrom, pitcher for the New York Mets, is dominating. Like, I picked him to win the Cy Young preseason, but his ERA right now is like .62. As of the recording of this, his whip, right, is it's like .5 something. Like, these are, these are stupid. These are stupid numbers, right? He's, I think he has the record. He's, he's like number one and number four of the most 100-plus mile-an-hour pitches thrown in a game. He's done that twice. He's thrown like 30-plus pitches in a game at plus 100 miles per hour. Like, Randy Johnson's not on that list right? Ronald Chapman's not on that list, or he might be on the list. I don't know. Actually, I think he is the number three, but it's just, it's an interesting thing how much he's dominating. I want him to stay healthy. And here's the other thing is if he stays healthy and keeps dominating like this, he's having a much, much better season that Clayton Kershaw did when Clayton Kershaw won the Cy Young and 
the MVP in the same season. So I think it'd be crazy not to give it to Jacob DeGrom if he keeps doing this. But then again, you know, this is why you don't look at wins with pitchers because he doesn't have a lot of wins. It's just kind of, you know, every time he pitches, the Mets don't like to score runs. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., he's dominating. Uh, I think he's currently leading the Triple Crown in the American League. You know, I don't know if he's going to continue doing that. That's a bit surprising because he kind of looked like a little bit of a disappointment the last couple of years. Now he's really coming into his own. Uh, Shohei Otani, again, that's all anyone could talk about for a while. That's the uh, Los Angeles Angels pitcher slash hitter. So, you know, he's going to hit from the left side of the plate for power, but he's also like got an ERA below three. Uh, that's pretty surprising. This is a guy that's hurt all time coming off Tommy John surgery. So I'm surprised he's doing this well. Uh, in terms of teams, like I didn't think the Red Sox were going to be this good. You know, here we are two months into the season. They're in first place playing well. San Francisco Giants, everybody's talking about the Padres and Dodgers out there in the NL West and for good reason. But the Giants are right there sitting on top. And I think they might have the best record in baseball, maybe right behind Tampa Bay. Surprised at how average the Yankees are. Right. I thought the Yankees, you know, were going to be an AL pennant contender. Right. And then they just haven't really played well. The Minnesota Twins have played really, really bad. Um, I'm not really surprised by the Cardinals. I, I thought they would be about average. They they haven't been playing incredibly well. And I didn't think they had really the roster to play incredibly well for much of the season. And I guess the last thing I'll talk about is Tony La Russa, who's the new manager for the Chicago White Sox. You know, he is, in my opinion, the greatest manager in the history of baseball, right? He just the other day went into second place all time in managerial wins behind Connie Mack. He's like a thousand wins behind Connie Mack. But that was back in the day when there was like four teams in baseball or something like that when Connie Mack was doing his thing. But uh, Tony La Russa is getting so much crap for his approach. Okay. You know, even his players, there was kind of this thing where, you know, this guy on his team swung on a 3-0 pitch and hit a home run. And, you know, the guy got hit the next day and Tony Russo actually came to the defense of the the pitcher that hit his own player. And as you know, there was kind of like some some nonsense going on in in the in the you know clubhouse and all those different things. But if I were Tony LaRusso and I felt like a lot of my players weren't really respecting me, my way of doing things, kind of the old school approach, wanting to do the flashy thing, you know what I would do? I would walk in one day with all my World Series rings, right? My two from the Cardinals. He, I think he got two from the the Oakland Athletics. Just walk in and just slam them down, say my hands down on the table to make sure that they could hear this hit in the table and just say, guys, I know what I'm doing. I have thousands of wins as a manager. So if I tell you to do something, you do it. You know why? This is why. And just count your rings, baby. All these guys on his team, I don't think there's a single player on the roster that has a World Series ring. Tony Russo has multiple. So a little bit surprising, but you know we'll see how that goes in the long term for the Chicago White Sox. They're playing well. All right, next question here. This is another one from Instagram. How do we show love to people living in homosexuality, but still reinforce the truth of the Bible about homosexuality? So, you know, I kind of look at this in terms of, you know, multiple steps here. But the first thing is what you don't do is tell this person that they're okay. You know, tell them that, that they can do whatever they want because God loves them anyway. And in the latter part of that statement is true, but that isn't the point. And you also don't want to, most importantly, tell them that God loves them just the way that they are. No, 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 no. God does not just love them the way that they are. Because if God loved us just the way that we are, then there would have been no reason whatsoever to send Jesus to become sin so that we may have the righteousness of God. That would have been completely not worth it, completely useless to do, okay? So you don't tell them that what they're doing is appropriate, okay? The second thing is you explain to them that Jesus took this seriously as a major sin, okay? That this isn't just some outdated Old Testament, you know, fuddy-duddy commandment, all right? So we got to go back to Matthew 15, 19, when Jesus says this, 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false, false witness, and slander. Okay. So a lot of people will say, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. He never talked about gay marriage or any of those things. So I bet it's okay. It's permissible. But that's an ignorant view. You know, even Carl Lentz, you know, who used to be the Hillsong pastor, he used to, he said that on, you know, The View or something like that. That is exegetically incorrect and ignorant, frankly, because if you go back to the root word of what Jesus said just here in Matthew 15, sexual immorality, if you were hearing that in that first century context, you wouldn't just hear sexual immorality. You would hear everything that that, that included, right? You would have heard, you know, sex outside of marriage. You would have heard about adultery right? Which was listed there. You would have heard, you know, you would have thought, you know, about bestiality or orgies or any of those things. And you certainly would have thought about homosexuality. So Jesus did talk about homosexuality. He just didn't do it in red letters in the way that your brain is going to accept. But he absolutely talked about it because it's easy for some people to dismiss the old Testament. Like, oh, isn't that old covenant, right? We don't need to be talking about old covenant. Let's talk about new covenant. But even in the new covenant, Jesus who came to fulfill the law, right? He thought that this was very, very important. Okay, so you should uphold that. And I guess the the third thing here would be tell them that just because they feel a drive inside them to to do something or to act in a certain way, that does not make that act moral or permissible. Because I forget who pointed this out. It was another pastor that was being interviewed by someone. It may have been Oprah or, you know, I don't really know. But he was basically talking, they were talking to him about, well, don't gay people just, they're just doing what comes naturally, what feels right. And he goes, as a heterosexual male, I want to have sex with every attractive woman I see. So should I? And, you know, it just stopped the interviewer in her tracks because it's like, well, it's, it's a natural inclination. Why wouldn't you just do that? What about people that are naturally violent? You know, if they hurt someone or murder somebody or rape somebody or something like that, like, should, should they just say, well, you know, this is what I felt like doing. So why shouldn't I do what I feel? I think you should have that, that discussion with this person that's living in homosexuality. But then the last thing here, and this is really important, so this is the fourth thing, is realize that if this person is not part of the church, okay, or sorry, let's, let's kind of go back a little bit. If this person is a part of the church, right, it is our duty to judge these people, okay? However, if they are not part of the church, it's not our place to judge. And so you might be thinking, that's crazy. Like, you know, scripture tells us not to judge. No, no, no. Scripture doesn't tell us not to judge. It tells us who to judge and how to judge, right? Jesus talked about that. But I want to talk about what happened in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13. So this is the Apostle Paul. He wrote this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not as an associate with anyone who bears the name of the brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a, such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, or is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, so he's talking about people that are inside the church, right? Inside the church in Corinth that are doing these crazy things, right? These horrible, you know, vile things, right? But he's saying that it's not your place to judge the people that live outside of that community, okay? So if this person is claiming to be a Christian, if they're one of those, you know, LGBTQ plus Christians, it is your responsibility to judge that person and to push them towards righteousness. That's your responsibility as a Christian. However, if this person is a you know strict materialist, atheist, agnostic, something like that, you should continue to share the gospel with these people, but it's not your right to judge their lifestyle, right? You can tell them what scripture says, but this is a person that probably thinks the Bible is just a collection of stuff that was written you know a thousand years after Jesus died and none of it's important. 
Okay, so so if they're not going to take that seriously, you still share the gospel with them, but it's not your place to have that final judgment. Okay, so hopefully that's helpful to you. All right, next question here. What are the last three albums that you listen to all the way through? Okay, so let's go to iTunes here. Let's actually do this. We're going to do it live. We'll do it live. Okay, here are the things. All right. Recently played. All right. So I've been listening to a lot of songs and not whole albums, so let's go to whole albums. Okay, Zayo, again, my favorite band of all time. They just released an album like a month ago or something called The Crimson Corridor. Mind-blowing. I love this album. I mean, I love this band. They're my favorite band of all time, but this album is like top three for me. So I'd probably go if, you know, if I'm just doing this off the top of my head, I'd probably go number one is where blood and fire bring rest. Number two would be the funeral of God. And number three would be the crimson corridor. I absolutely love this. I would put it ahead of Liberate for Zayo fans out there. Like your head may have just exploded, but yes, that's a great one. Um, Looks like the next album I went through, Deftones. Okay, so I'm not a huge Deftones fan, but they have an album they released called Ohms. I think that's their latest album. That's what I listened to. Uh, the Devil Wears Prada, they released a second zombie EP. Well, I guess that's an EP. It's not technically an album, so we can do one more. But yeah, Devil Wears Prada, I haven't really listened to them recently, but their zombie EP, original one from like 10 years ago, is amazing. And they released Zombie 2, which is really good, especially as you continue listening. Okay, last one here, last one. Okay, the Juliana Theory, right? I took it back to the year 2000, I think, but uh, I listened to The Emotion is Dead, okay? So I think that was their first or second album. The Juliana Theory, the lead singer, was actually the guitarist on Zayo's, my favorite Zayo album, which is Blood and Fire Bring Rest. So I listened to that. They're kind of more poppy. So if you go back and listen to that, you might be like, what is Kyle listening to? But yeah, that's kind of a classic album for me. All right, guys, next question here. What do you think of Christians that say you are not, quote, loving your neighbor if you do or have defied mask mandates and or lockdown mandates. Um, I feel like I've talked about this one quite a bit before. I've done entire episodes on COVID-19 and kind of how we've treated COVID-19. But a lot of these people that are saying, how are you, are you not loving your neighbor? Most of these people aren't Christians, right? So you don't really need to be concerned with what they think. But it is interesting that there are a lot of Christians, you know, maybe you can call them woke Christians or something like that. They're very concerned about us loving our neighbors. And so they're like, if you're not wearing your mask outside, you're not loving your neighbor. If you're not staying at home because the governor told you to stay home, you're not loving people. The thing about it is, is we need to love people in truth. And here in a second, when we talk about Fauci's emails, a lot of things that were said, a lot of things that we thought about COVID and about masking weren't true. And the people that were pulling the strings, they knew it. They knew that it wasn't true. So I'd say for us that this is kind of a time for a lot of us, especially if you go back, you know, a year ago, maybe 14 months ago, everybody thought that this was going to be Spanish flu. 10% of the population of the earth was going to die. It was going to be this horrible thing. And it just ended up being nothing even close to that. And so I think part of the reason or part of the way that you love your neighbor is that you have honest discussions and you're, you're forthright with things that you think and that, you know, you should have those discussions. But at the same time, we're all autonomous people. Okay. So I was not incredibly careful and I got COVID from my neighbor because we were in the truck for the same time for an hour. Like it just happened that way. Right. But if you're an older person and you're susceptible and you're overweight and you have diabetes and you're maybe, you know, in remission for cancer, and then you also decide that you want to go out and go to the grocery store without a mask on, it's up to you. Me wearing a mask is not going to keep you safe. It's just, just not, that's not the way that this goes right? For most people, you wearing a mask isn't going to keep you safe in a lot of those situations. So, so to those Christians that say you're not loving your neighbor, I would encourage them, then stay home. You're a human being. And if you don't want to listen to reason or logic or, or read things, right, then just stay home. If you think that's loving your neighbor, stay home. Don't worry about what I'm doing. All right. Next question here. We only got a couple left. Since you're no longer watching the NBA, what have you filled in the gap with? 
Have you picked up another sport or another hobby? So here's the thing. Interesting that this question came up because just this week on my personal Facebook, I talked about since I've given up on the NBA, I can't do the wokeness. I can't watch a game and be lectured to about how I'm a systemic racist or, you know, some horrible person. I'm, I'm out. I'm out on the NBA. I don't know what's happening. I don't really care. As long as LeBron James doesn't win a championship, I'm happy. That's kind of where I'm at right now. But I am going to go all in on the NHL. So to my Canadian fans, your mind's just blue because I know I got a lot of Canadian fans that listen to this. I'm going with the NHL, baby, okay? But I don't really know how to pick a team because here's the thing. I'm not going to pick a team that I'm going to live and die with. I've lived and died enough with the OKC Thunder and the, the St. Louis Cardinals and Manchester United back in the day and certain fighters. I'm done with that era of my life. And right now you can't even watch MLB games. I can't even watch St. Louis Cardinals games in Oklahoma City because of their, their blackout rules and all that kind of stuff. So what I've done is I've taken the NHL and I've narrowed it down to four teams. Okay. So I need your guys' help, right? And the Canadians won't like this much because there's no Canadian teams, but you know, I can't hate myself that much. Okay. So only American teams, but these are the four teams and these are the main reasons why I'm trying to pick between these four teams, regardless of what's happening currently in the playoffs. So the first team, this is in no particular order, Boston Bruins. Okay. So my main reasons for that is I really like the city of Boston. I love it way more than New York city. I would love to visit there and go see a game and their fans seem like crazy fun. They're one, I think they're one of the original franchises. So that's Boston Bruins. The second is Dallas stars. Main reason is they're the closest NHL team to me. So if I wanted to drive to go see a game, it's not that far from me. So the third would be the Las Vegas Knights. Okay. So the main reason for them was, you know, they're a pretty new franchise. I think this is maybe their third or fourth season to be a team. Uh, and I think I'd fit in nicely with their fan base because it's fairly transient. It's, you know, there's not really Las Vegas Knights fans, right? It's just people that go to Vegas and they're there that week, right? They'll go to a, a, a Knights game or two. So I'd kind of fit in there because I'm kind of a transient fan, I guess. And the last one is St. Louis Blues. The main reason is because I'm a huge St. Louis Cardinals fan. So it would be kind of cool to go up to the city and see a Cardinals game one day and then go see a Blues game uh, the next day or something like that, because, you know, their seasons do overlap a little bit. So I need your guys' help. All right. Those are my last four. I've kind of, you know, gathered my opinions. I know, I think the Bruins and the Knights are still in the playoffs, but Boston Bruins, Dallas Stars, Las Vegas Knights, and St. Louis Blues, those are the final four. You know, people ask me about the, you know, Colorado Avalanche. They asked me about the Nashville Predators, but, you know, I, I had to cut it somewhere. So I cut it down to four. So I need your help. All right. Last thing here, Kyle, what are your thoughts on all the drama surrounding Dr. Fauci's emails? Okay, so here's the deal. A lot's going to go into this, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it because there was a Freedom of Information Act request to get Fauci's emails. We got a dump of his emails, and some people are treating this as if this is nothing. Some people are treating it as if it's world-ending bombshells. I'm kind of more so on the bombshell side of things, but I think there are three main bombshells here from Dr. Fauci's emails. Okay, number one, he publicly said that masks, that, that mask wearing was essential to saving lives. That's what he said publicly while privately in his emails saying that the overwhelming majority of masks didn't protect the wearer at all. Basically, what he was saying in his emails is these cloth masks that you get from Walgreens or something like that, that that's not helping you as the wearer. It might keep some of the droplets out, but you're constantly fidgeting with it. You know, it's getting damp, which might even attract more droplets. It's not safe. These are things that he said in his email. But whenever he would talk publicly, he's like, yeah, you got to wear a mask. No matter what, you got to wear a mask. You know, wear two masks. I don't care what you say, Rand Paul. I'm saying the right thing because I'm Dr. Fauci. I make so much money. I'm the best guy ever. So that's what we heard from Fauci for forever. Okay. So straight up lied to the American public. And if you go back to the very beginning, remember when he said that you don't need to wear masks at all? 
right? That was closer to the truth, but he was doing it purposely lying to the American public because he thought that there wasn't going to be enough for, you know, frontline workers that are working in hospitals, nurses and doctors and such, right? So that's number one. That's the biggest bombshell. Number one. Number two, he publicly denied the possibility that COVID-19 escaped from a lab in Wuhan, right? While privately corresponding with people that he thought that that was a real possibility. So for over a year, he was talking about how, you know, if you thought this came from a lab in Wuhan, right, that this, this, you were a crazy person, that this was conspiracy theory nonsense. If you said this out loud, you, you should basically lose your right to talk in the public square, right? That's what he said, right? But now here we are about a week ago, it's revealed that that's probably the most likely cause, right? It wasn't, you know, a bat that was eaten by a pangolin that was eaten by a Chinese guy. That's not how COVID-19 was sprung on the earth. It was this level four lab in Wuhan and it escaped because we saw back in November of 2019, there were these Chinese scientists that worked in that lab that went to the hospital, right? That had these COVID-19 like symptoms. They didn't have a COVID test at the time. And then I think even some of those people like their, their husbands or wives died whenever they went home from this disease and all that. And that's kind of the deal is we were told for for a long, for the longest time, if you even question that, you're going to get kicked off social media. If you even, even pointed out that, you know, this didn't even make sense that it would come from a bat because of that time of year, those bats weren't even in that region in Wuhan, you, you were basically put out. So that was the second big lie that he told that his emails revealed. But then there was a third bombshell here. He publicly denied, again, you know, you're kind of getting the thing. He publicly denied something and then he actually thought it in person or basically behind closed doors. He publicly denied that the National Institutes of Health, that's the NIH, funded gain of function research at the Wuhan lab that COVID-19 likely escaped from while privately knowing that U.S. taxpayer funds were going to that lab via a third party and that earmarking money means nothing. Okay, so so let's kind of break this down because a lot of this stuff gets thrown around. So he is the head of the NIH, Right. And he was asked point blank from Senator Paul from Kentucky. He was asked if the money was going from U.S. taxpayers to go to gain of function research. Now, for the, for the first couple of weeks that people were saying gain of function, I was hearing like gainer function. Like if, you know, Fauci would have said, it's like, I'm going to do a gainer off the diving board, gain of function. No, no, it's gain of function. But when people say it fast, it sounds like gain of function, but it's gain of function. Essentially, what that research is, is these are scientists that are trying to look at these these viruses, right, or these diseases, and they're trying to see if they can manipulate them. You know, some people would say weaponize, but they're trying to manipulate them, right? That's what gain of function research says. But what he would constantly say is he would come out and say, no, 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 we're not funding gain of function research. The money that goes to them is earmarked for X, Y, and Z. But it's the exact same thing that I say with Planned Parenthood. When you give millions and millions and millions of dollars to Planned Parenthood, but you say, but don't use these for abortions. They're like, okay, no problem. We'll put it over here and we won't use that money. It's not real. That's not how this works. Look at Planned Parenthood as a gigantic entity. And if you give that entity money, they can use it for whatever they want, even though the tax man that works there for them or their CPAs or internal lawyers are going to categorize it differently. They're using the money for whatever the hell they want to use it for, right? Same thing is true with the NIH. Same thing is true for whoever the NIH gives money to. This lab was using that money in total for their budgets, right? Because when you give someone a bunch of money and say, don't spend it on this, it affects their budgets regardless, right? If they're a business, it affects their profit and loss sheet, right? So those are three enormous, enormous things that we were told we were crazy over the last year. If we question mask wearing or if we question, you know, where this originated, where this virus originated, and even recently, like, hey, are we funding this? So now what it seems like is you have all these U.S., uh, you know, bureaucrats and, and, you know, politicians that are covering their butts because it looks like the U.S. funded the research that led to this all going poorly, right? 
which China still hasn't really suffered much in terms of uh, as a world power from allowing this to happen. And, uh, and, you know, the jury's out on whether or not it's not going to happen. Joe Biden certainly isn't going to be the guy that's going to put pressure on Chairman Z. But it's kind of one of those issues right now where big tech censorship was a big deal during all this because there were people that were kicked off of social media permanently that now if you say that, yeah, I think we've been funding gain-of-function research or, yeah, I don't think this came from an animal. I think this came from a lab. Now that's something that you can suddenly say. But we were silenced. People were silenced for being reasonable for 14, 15 months now, right? You're a conspiracy theorist. You're some sort of fringe person. But look where we are. Big tech censorship is really a big deal. All right, guys. So there's were about 15 questions. I appreciate those questions again. Uh, but, you know, obviously we're going to keep doing this. So you got to send in your questions. But we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men like you to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So if you want to submit questions for Q&A episodes in the future, again, the email info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at Undaunted Life. Or you can go to www.undaunted.life backslash contact. I've also got a link here to the Paxton Smith uh, High School speech. So you if you want to watch the entire thing, it's there for you. And then I've got an episode that I didn't mention, or but it's episode 69 of the Cooper Stuff podcast. It's called, Are You Tired of Being Right? And so he was going into some of the things that we talked about on today's episode, but I thought this was a great episode from John. And again, we're kind of indebted to John because we've had a really good week because I was on the show and there were some other things that we got coming up that are coming out of that opportunity, but I wanted to make sure that you check out that episode. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just make sure to email us. Again, the email is info at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. Check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming to you for free at www.undaunted.life backslash donate. We want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>